I'm Silas Farley. I'm a dancer with New York City Ballet, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to Hear the Dance. In this episode, we will take an in-depth look at the enigmatic male solo from Balanchine's ballet, Episodes. Balanchine choreographed Episodes in 1959 as a joint venture with the grand dame of American modern dance, Martha Graham. The premise of the evening was to use the complete orchestral works of Anton Webern. Webern was one of the three composers of the Second Viennese School, along with Alban Berg and Arnold Schoenberg, who was both Berg and Webern's teacher. Webern's works are both radical and rooted. Radical in their use of Schoenberg's 12-tone compositional technique and rooted in Baroque and classical forms like the Passacaglia, Concerto, and Symphony. With this combination of qualities, the Webern scores provided a fitting complement to Balanchine and Graham's choreography. Martha Graham's half of episodes was a lavishly costumed story ballet that chronicled the final moments leading up to the beheading of Mary, Queen of Scots. Graham herself danced the role of the doomed heroine. In addition to dancers from her own company, Graham used three men and one woman from City Ballet. That one woman was Sally Wilson, whom Graham cast as Queen Elizabeth I. A memorable moment from Graham's contribution to episodes was when the two queens played a highly ritualized tennis match, with Elizabeth's victory signifying her political triumph over Mary. The Graham portion was only performed at City Ballet for a few seasons. Graham would later stage a revised version of it for her own company. Mr. Balanchine's half of episodes has been a consistent part of City Ballet's repertory for decades. His section is a plotless ballet, with the dancers costumed in the sleek uniform of black and white leotards and tights. The first part is set to Webern's Symphony, Opus 21, and was first danced by Violette Verdi and Jonathan Watts, flanked by three corps de ballet couples. In it, Balanchine takes the academic ballet vocabulary and turns it upside down. Literally. The following sections continue that exploration of classical ballet technique pushed to its limits, and in them, Balanchine demonstrates the inherent drama in different groupings of dancers. In five pieces, Opus 10, a man and a woman share the same stage space and even some of the same steps, yet they seem alienated from each other throughout. In the Concerto Opus 24, a man and a woman dance with a group of four women, and these four ladies are sometimes the couple's frame and sometimes the couple's snare. The fourth section of Balanchine's episodes is a highly contorted solo for a man dressed all in white, set to Webern's Variations, Opus 30. This male solo is followed by a majestic finale for a central couple, surrounded by a core of 14 women. Its music is Webern's orchestration of the Ricercata in six voices from Johann Sebastian Bach's musical offering. It's a restoration of balance and harmony after the dissonance of the preceding sights and sounds. Balanchine choreographed the male solo in his section of episodes for a then-soloist in Martha Graham's company, Paul Taylor. Taylor would go on to be one of the dance giants, enjoying an over-60-year career in which he made 147 dances. It's this solo for Taylor that will be our particular focus for this episode's episode. Paul Taylor danced this solo as a guest artist with City Ballet for three seasons. 
From 1961 to 1986, Balanchine's episodes was performed without the solo. In 1986, Paul Taylor taught the solo to a New York City ballet dancer named Peter Frame. Peter Frame danced the role from 1986 to 1989, after which time the ballet was again performed without the solo. This winter season marks the solo's return to City Ballet's performances of episodes, and it's a memorial and celebration of the lives of Paul Taylor and Peter Frame, both of whom passed away in 2018. I recently sat down with the two men who will dance the solo in this winter season's performances, New York City Ballet soloist Giovanni Ferlan and Michael Tresnevec, a former leading dancer with the Paul Taylor Dance Company. In our conversation, you'll hear their thoughts on Balanchine and Taylor and get a unique window into their preparation process for this historic role. Giovanni Ferlan, Michael Tresnevec, welcome to the Hear the Dance podcast. It's a delight to have you guys. I just want to thank you all for being here. Of course. And for taking the time out of your lives to share your insights because this is such a unique moment for the New York City Ballet our repertory, and to restore this piece at this time is very poignant. And it's something that the company's audience hasn't seen in many years. And you guys are the authorities on it now. As destiny has had it, because Paul Taylor is no longer with us, Peter Frame is no longer with us. And uh, Michael, you worked so closely with Paul, and Giovanni, you worked so closely with Peter on the reconstruction of the solo in Miami. So you guys are now authoritative voices on this very unique piece, which is awesome and a real privilege and responsibility. I know I'm excited to see y'all dance it, and I know that the audience is too. Giovanni, before joining New York City Ballet, you were a dancer with Miami City Ballet, which is like a daughter company of New York City Ballet. Its founder, Edward Valella, was a great principal dancer for Balanchine, and it has the largest Balanchine repertory outside of New York City Ballet itself. So uh, what were your thoughts about Balanchine's aesthetic and his choreography before coming here, and uh, how did you fall in love with it, and maybe also how did it relate to your early training at the Bolshoi Ballet's affiliate school where you trained? in Brazil? Well, it's a really funny story because actually up until getting the scholarship for Miami City Ballet School, I had never even heard of Balanchine, which is kind of insane, even though I went to a Russian school and we study a lot of history of dance, Balanchine was never mentioned to us. So when I first learned about it, I started, you know, just looking at videos and seeing, I saw, you know, the most like, I guess, traditional like serenade and I saw some black and white, but the thing that spoke to me the most was serenade because I still didn't have that, you know, taste to watch a black and white ballet and I appreciate it. So it was a um, whole new universe for me, definitely, of being being exposed to something that I hadn't ever heard of and it was out there for so long. So when I moved... I remember my first classes with Carter Alexander at Miami City Ballet. Just very, he was very specific about musicality, about how we crossed our legs in fifth position. And I think um, my school was, you know, they were very demanding and we had very good teachers that taught technique very well, Vaganova technique, in which balancing dancers, you know, back in the day were trained, you know, with Russian technique and he kind of just stretched it out. So I think that that gave me a good advantage of being a good place with my technique where I could come to Miami City Ballet School and have someone just play with it, you know, stretch the line or make it a little more physical and clear for the audience where you see, like, like balancing, like, you know, you, was, you see the music in the body. And mm-hmm. that was my first, um, 
the first thing that I saw the huge contrast between my training and what was expected of me at Miami City Ballet School. So cool. Yeah. And for the listeners, there's a fun little lineage there that George Balanchine taught a man named Truman Finney, and Truman Finney taught Carter Alexander, and Carter, Carter Alexander taught you. Yes. And then you also had Eddie Villella as a teacher and yes. mentor in Miami. What was it like working under his leadership? Eddie Villella was just, he was a force of nature. I mean, he is a force of nature. Um, he, the way he showed steps and he made a lot of sounds and he showed it with his body. He was very physical, but he didn't even have to do the movements full out. Just, he would do like, <clears throat> and you just see, he was like, develop it around the jump, develop it around the, and you understood what he wanted you to do with your body. There was this attack in the way of the, the steps. And also as a person, he was just, you know, very uh, encouraging. He liked to see people moving. And I remember one of my, because I was in the school, so I didn't get to work with him a lot in the beginning. And one of my first rehearsals with him was for the workshop. And I was doing uh, Balancing Swan Lake. We're doing the second act. And he, I prepared to do my variation. I stood in a CSU in fifth position. And the first thing he said was, you don't have to prove anything to me. And that was so, I, I had never expected him to say that or anyone to say that, you know. Of course you have to prove something to someone you want to work for. And that was just very incredible. He's such a great man. Such a, and he kept the flame alive. You know, he brought the flame from New York City Ballet to Miami City Ballet. And he started that institution from nothing in a city where the arts, you know, it was still not as developed as it is right now. So it's amazing what he did there. He changed the cultural scene. Like he made it something happen in Miami, like South Florida. It's incredible. Mm. You had danced some other Balanchine ballets before episodes. Yes. So you'd done Balanchine Swan Lake and yeah, that was my, the first Balanchine ballet that I did was Swan Lake, um, and I did Serenade before that. I did Square Dance. Um, what else did I do before? I think those are the only two that I did maybe before diving into you know <laughs> black and white ballet. And so, how was episodes similar or different from those earlier Balanchine pieces you'd worked on? Oh, it was completely different. It was completely, completely different for me. You know, I mean, square dance is also very, you know, um, I mean, square, <laughs> you know, you're just doing like basic ballet steps and basic ballet technique. And just, um, and serenade is just about swooping and, you know, waltzing around and dancing to beautiful Tchaikovsky music. When we started doing episodes, it was a little bit, not a shock, because by then I had, you know, watched the company do other ballads. I had watched Fortis, uh, so I had a little bit of more uh, a visual, you know, idea of what the ballads were supposed to look like. But when we started, especially the music was very, just, I couldn't understand it very much, what, what it was about, what it was supposed to bring to it. So it was, uh, you know, building blocks of the learning process of that. And you learned the symphony section of episodes from Patricia Neary. Yes. Patricia Neary danced for City Ballet under Balanchine from 1960 to 1968. She notably originated the role of the tall soloist woman in Balanchine's Rubies. She went on to direct several ballet companies, including those in Geneva and Zurich, and has been a stager of Mr. Balanchine's ballets for decades. She was pure joy and also very demanding in the studio. She was very honest with her words. Yeah, she said what she wanted to look like she she said the nice things that looks good on, that looks good that you were doing but she was also very good about saying like no no honey that doesn't look good and she just has that way about her that like it's it's just funny and it it makes you not take anything personal like you just want to please her 
And I remember we were doing the symphony section, and um, there's this part where the lady has to do some hops on point. And she was just trying to show it, and she, like, puts her point shoes on. She, she shows it. She shows everything. And she pulled up this, like, grainy black and white video of Yolai Verdi doing it. She's like, okay, we have to see Yolai. And then she put it on. If you like started doing it, she's like, yeah, that's my girl. That's my girl. I knew she wouldn't <laughs> disappoint me. I knew she was going to do it right. And it was so impressive. Mm. She was just like flying through point. Like her arabesque, like she took over the entire stage. Even though it was just like four hops going around like a square. Mm. And she just like flew. So, yeah, and Pat Neary was just so great to work with. And she was very encouraging also about the solo because she knew I was doing the solo as well. Mm-hmm. And she would watch like dress rehearsal and just be very encouraging after. The dance critic Edwin Denby had taken Lincoln Kirstein to see some performances of Paul Taylor's choreography. And so Lincoln was very interested in Paul coming to do something here with City Ballet. And there were some false starts as to what that would be. But then when this episode's project came up, became clear that this was going to be the time that Paul was going to come work in the Balanchine Kirstein orbit. Michael, you worked with Paul very closely for many, many years, originating roles in his ballets, working closely with him on his existing repertory. How did you first learn about this solo that Mr. B had made for Paul Taylor? I must have read about it somewhere. I've always been interested in the things that Paul had done as a young man, just the things that shaped him as an artist, what may have affected his work. So I think I was drawn to things like that all the time. I was fascinated because there was no footage of it. It's the one soul that every time I went out to look to see him move in that work, it didn't exist. No matter how hard I looked, couldn't find it. Mm. No matter who I asked, they could tell me recollections of seeing it, but they couldn't provide me any sort of information outside the photographs that existed. So the mystery of it was part of the intrigue for mm-hmm. you. For sure. How did you come to dance this solo? I had to do a little digging myself to try to remember the, the sort of the road that led to doing it. Um, many years before Mr. Taylor's death, um, Suzanne Carboneau, who is currently writing the, the biography about Paul, had approached him about bringing the solo back to life when the company started doing new other masterworks outside of the Taylor idiom, kind of creating this at Paul Taylor's American Modern Dance. And he didn't want to bring it back. Mm. And she waited a couple years and tried again, and he kept sort of putting it off. The reasons, I have no idea why. And Suzanne and I had spoken about the solo a couple times. She had taken it to John Tomlinson, the executive director, and he was intrigued and wanted it to happen as well. And I just think the timing of Paul's death and the next day Peter Frame's death sort of set in motion this unstoppable um, train ride that led to bringing episodes back in some way, shape, or form. Mm. Yeah, so I feel like Suzanne was a, a big driver of wanting to make that happen. Because often people would whisper in my ear, other people that had seen the soul, and they said, oh, you should do this. They should bring it back. So, so many pe- people kept saying it to me that I thought, I hope it happens at some point. And if not me, someone. I just wanted someone to do it, more so because I wanted to see it. Well, thank you, Suzanne Carboneau, for getting the ball rolling (laughs) to whatever degree Mm -hmm. that she did. That's wonderful. So Mr. Balanchine created the role for Paul Taylor in 1959. Paul danced it as a guest artist with New York City Ballet for a couple seasons, like two or three seasons. And then when he was no longer available to keep doing it, it fell out of the repertory. And then in 1986... Just three years after he'd taken over leadership of New York City Ballet, Peter Martins approached Paul Taylor about reconstructing the solo and restoring it to the context of Mr. Balanchine's part of episodes. 
And Paul was keen to do it. He had even offered to Balanchine and to City Ballet to set the solo earlier on, but for whatever reason, they didn't take him up on that. So Paul was keen on helping do this reconstruction in 86. And so he came in to watch company class, and he got to choose who he wanted to work with. And he chose Peter Frame, this exquisite dancer with New York City Ballet, who was a wonderful teacher and mentor to generations of dancers at the School of American Ballet and Ballet Academy East, who we lost just recently. And he is so, so sorely missed, an amazing man. Paul picked Peter Frame, and he also picked Eve Anderson, but Eve Anderson got injured and was not able to proceed with the process. And Paul reconstructed the solo using photographs and using copious notes that he had taken during the creative process from 1959. He would go home from the rehearsals with Balanchine and try to write it down in words and draw stick figures of the contorted positions that Mr. Balanchine had put him into. And so he and Peter worked very closely on the reconstruction of the solo, and it was restored at that time. And so Peter danced it for just a couple of years, 86 to around 89 or something like that. And then after his time, it was not seen again. And some companies wanted to start introducing it again to their stagings of episodes, the company in Dusseldorf, Germany, and then also Miami City Ballet. So when Giovanni was learning episodes, he got to learn this solo, which is called Variations, set to Variations Opus 30 by Webern. And uh, Giovanni learned it from Peter Frame. What was it like to have Peter in the studios in Miami? I know he taught company class while he was there in addition to staging. What was his presence and his uh, impact like there? Well, you could see from day one, when we found out that he was coming, so many of the dancers in the company, they had been to, you know, students of SAB or BAE, so they had worked with Peter closely. I, unfortunately, had never had the opportunity. So to me, it was just, you know, this this guy is coming to set the solo and wonderful. But everyone had so much respect and admiration for him. Um, they had so many good memories and just they they loved him. They admire him as a man, as a mentor, as a teacher, as a guide. He had some things about him that worrying about just, you know, dance. He really wanted to nurture people in many ways, like nurture their humanity, the way they approach dance with their humanity. So I could see from that he, he was respected by everyone around me. So I was very excited to, to get to be in the studio with him and then just learning about the you know, the history of episodes that the solo was in has, hadn't been performed in so many years. So it was such an honor definitely to be to know that I was going to be in the studio learning it again. And when he walked in, the first thing that he said was like, you guys are barefoot. There are no counts. And let's just get started. So <laughs> we all looked around and we knew it was going to be a big challenge because I don't think anyone in that studio had ever danced barefoot. I hadn't. <laughs> I hadn't. Um, so yeah, we just went from there and he he just had it under his belt, you know, like he knew so well what he was doing. It was second nature for him. And he, he was very demanding and specific about what he wanted us to do and how the solo was supposed to be done. And he knew how to bring that out of us. Like each one of us, we had some moments with him where he he knew what that person needed to hear to be able to just portray the the bug trapped in a glass of milk that that's what the analogy that he used to explain what the solo is supposed to be like which gave us a really good image and idea of how to just approach the steps and the choreography 
That image Peter shared came from Balanchine himself. When Paul Taylor had asked Mr. B how the solo should be performed, Mr. B said, is like fly in glass of milk, yes? It is indeed a perfect picture to have in mind for this solo, with the male dancer dressed all in white in the spotlight's glare. Now back to Giovanni. The hardest thing about it was definitely just learning the music because there are no, there are no counts. I think at some point he did try to come up with some counts, but at the end of the day, you just have to know the music like in your, in your heart. So, you know, you know, the harp plays, you're doing a punch it, there's a little thud in the music, and you know, that's when my turns are coming up. So that's how you kind of keep up with the choreography. And I, I read one of the interviews with Paul, and he said that he just went and bought, you know, a vinyl and kept listening to the music over and over, and then he bought another one when that one was worn out. And then it's funny because now, you know, that 21st century, what I did was go on YouTube and find a recording and I just listened to it over and over again. Uh, we were supposed to perform it, I think, in February or March, and he came September, so a lot of months before. So I had all, the, all of that time to just really observe the music. And that's what I did so I could, you know, apply the corrections and the steps and the, the intention of the piece. I, I needed to know the music by heart. Mm. Did Peter go into any stories from the experience that he'd had working on the reconstruction in 86 with Paul Taylor? Yeah, he, he had a lot to say, but at the same time, not very much because he said that there are even things that Paul didn't remember. He just had to do it from his body and there are things he couldn't show. And some things were changed. And because he was done on a ballet dancer, you know, we have a very different way of carrying our bodies and carrying our weight. So he just said that it was it was very um, slow process, and that he also felt like he wasn't sure if he was going to be able to do it, but it, that it was just amazing to learn from Paul. You know, something that it was it's an enigma that solo, and that's I think what's the coolest thing about it. it everyone has a question. Like it was, it finishes and you have a question mark. Even when you're dancing, you have a question mark like in your head, like. What am I doing here? Like, what is what is this like? And about the story of the solo that you're you're in this constant loop. You know, the the solo repeats itself. You don't know like, did I am I a bug? Did I die in this glass of milk? Did I never get out? Am I going to get out? Am I gonna keep trying? Is anyone seeing me do this? Am I alone? It's, it's just, and I think that's what Peter felt when he was learning. He definitely, I think, put that to us. And I think that probably Michael felt that way too. That we're just it's it's a it's a journey, you know. It's really interesting. Mm. <laughs> I wonder where all those notes went. Mm. Where are those pages and pages of notes that Paul made the solo from? Where, where the, did they land? Yeah, where the stick figures? I want to see the stick figures. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I've seen Paul's yeah. notes before for other dances, so I'm very curious what kind of information was in there. Where did they land? Mm. Are they somewhere in his belongings that are still being sifted through? Because he was a saver of everything. He's an so archivist of a I would guess that they're somewhere in his belongings. We'll oh, discover them later yes. at some point. Oh, I look forward to that day. Mm -hmm. One of the things that Peter Frame remembered that was really special about that reconstruction process with Paul was getting to learn it from Paul in Paul's studios. And there's no mirror there. And as a ballet dancer coming into that space, he felt it so instructive and almost transformative to learn by feeling the movement as opposed to constantly looking at it. Could you talk a little bit about that? I mean, I think it's one of the things that I was so happy about working with Paul is that you didn't have that constant reflection at the front of the room telling you, 
you were good or bad. You had this man that you trusted at the front of the room to let you know when something wasn't right or it wasn't working. And so you really were able to inhabit the movement in a much deeper way than if you were just superficially seeing and making shapes. So you were constantly pushed to sort of dig a little deeper and find the intention behind the movement, which speaks so loudly in this solo. There's not that much going on. It's really choreographically quite simple. So to be asked or forced to look a little bit inside rather than I have to see this image or like establish this image or fit into some sort of picture and instead think about like the depth behind the movement is so great. Mm. I mean, it's kind of incredible that Balanchine made a solo like this at all. Even if this isn't exactly what the solo was then, I think the intention is probably still the same. Mm -hmm. The essence of the solo is the same. Mm -hmm. I, I can't imagine. I mean, I think when we worked on it, we did use the mirror. It was helpful for me just to be able to see Giovanni next to me as we were working our way through it. But then once I knew it, I didn't want to see the mirrors. I think I asked to turn around and face the other way. Mm -hmm. And any time I work on it alone, I never do it with a mirror, even if I'm the only person in the studio because it's distracting. Mm -hmm. I think it takes you outside of yourself, and it's one of the solos you need to get lost in. So much like pretty much all of Paul's work, it's about that sort of universe, that little community, that magic that happens when you sort of take it in, and it's not about um, the external. It's more about the internal. How did you two connect around this solo? Uh, we connected, it was actually through um, Lourdes Lopez, the artistic director of Miami City Ballet. Uh, the, the trust reached out to her and because they knew Miami City Ballet had been, you know, the last company that did it and that Peter Frame had set it on us. So she reached out to me saying that the trust was looking for someone to set the solo on a Paul Taylor dancer. I had no idea that it was Michael. M names weren't mentioned then. Um, and she just asked me if I had any interest, and of course I was so honored and pleased, and I said absolutely. Um, so then from there on, we got connected through the trust. The trust Giovanni is referring to is the George Balanchine Trust, which oversees the licensing and staging of Balanchine's ballets throughout the world. And Michael has a relationship with Miami City Ballet, so he came down to watch a program when we kind of just sat together. We watched the solo, and... I think I had to convince him a little bit that he should do it and that he could definitely do it. Because you know what, sometimes I get really caught up on um, typecasting and like, oh, this, this is supposed to be like that or it's supposed to be done with this kind of body. And that's the way a lot of people see dance. I didn't, I really don't see it that way. So I was just really excited to see him tackle it. And I was like, I, yeah, I'm glad he, he decided to do it <laughs> and that I was able to convince him. Yeah. <laughs> it did take a little convincing. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't convinced that I wanted to do it for a multitude of reasons. Um, one, that wasn't really the solo that Balanchine had made for Paul. So part of me thought, am I just learning another a Taylor solo? <laughs> what exactly is it am I learning? So it was important for me to speak to someone that had done it and someone that had worked with Peter to get a sense of just how much this staging was close to what the original, would it actually capture what was in the original? Um, and I, of course, I had doubts about myself as a dancer. I, I am not Paul Taylor. I don't really naturally move like Paul Taylor. Um, he is a much larger man. He's very flexible. That's not me. So when I, what I had seen of the solo, I kept thinking, am I really appropriate for this? Um, and so talking to Giovanni and seeing him do the solo and seeing different versions of, because I think I'd only seen Peter at that point. So 
seeing the solo on another dancer's body opened up the idea of, wait, this could probably work on me. Um, and it's not so important about the high leg moments or the things that maybe are outside of what I would normally do, but I felt like there was something I could bring to the solo that might be unique or different. I'm always up for a challenge too. I think I was looking for a challenge. Um, I think leaving the Taylor company or knowing I was going to be going to be leaving the Taylor company, you know, that's can be frightening. And so you look for something that might give you something to pay attention to. Like knowing I was going to leave the universe of the Paul Taylor dances, it kind of gave me something to already be focused on as I was exiting. So I didn't have to think about the end. I was thinking about, ooh, something new. Mm. Look what I get to go and do. But it still felt connected in some way to Paul. And so that was a nice. And to pay homage to him is a great thing. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> so it became a beautiful bridge into the next phase of your development as an mm -hmm. artist. And now I kind of don't want it to end. <laughs> <laughs> There's still two more performances. I know. <laughs> I know, but then it's like after that, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting that as Destiny would have it, Giovanni ended up joining New York City Ballet earlier this season. So he was able to teach you the part, Michael. And he was living in New York as a New York City Ballet dancer at that point, which is really wonderful. Yeah. And we're very delighted that you're part of the New York City Ballet family. I'm Giovanni. very, very happy to be here, yeah. <clears throat> Could you take us into the studio and describe that process? One thing I thought about even before... Uh, kind of diving into that is that this ballet and this solo within this ballet has always been something very intimate. When it was first made, it was just Mr. Balanchine and Taylor in the room and the pianist. And then when Paul reconstructed it, it was just Paul and Peter. And then when when Peter said it in Miami, there were a few other dancers that learned yes, it. So that process was maybe a little more open. But then again, in this transmission that just happened this past fall, it was just you, Giovanni, and Michael, and our ballet mistress, Glenn Keenan, in the room. So it's always had a kind of intimacy in the uh, transfer of this particular dance. What was that process like for y'all? I mean, I think that intimacy makes sense. I think because the work is so difficult and odd and strange, I think if there were a lot of outside eyes on it, it might be a bit daunting to, to take it on. So it was nice that we had a pro almost like a private moment to kind of go through it and for me to glean as much information from Giovanni as I could. Um, you did have some films of working in the studio with Peter, which were helpful to hear his voice speaking about the work was really nice. But I feel like we just dove into it very physically. I mean, I think that was the easiest way to tackle it, just start learning the material, even without the sound, even without the music so much. We did have a pianist the first couple rehearsals that played through some of the sections, but I found that actually more difficult for me to make sense of when I was hearing the music that way because I had come into the rehearsals already having listened to the recording so much that it was confusing almost because I'm not used to working in that way. I'm mm -hmm. not used to having a rehearsal pianist that's playing through things. I'm used to working with the piece as orchestrated. So, um, yeah, the audio was challenging at first. But I think we found our way through that. And um, there were definitely moments where it was challenging to remember the sequence of the shapes. Yeah, they don't really fit together. It's like a puzzle that's put together completely wrong. Like all the pieces are just shoved into the parts where they shouldn't be. Um, so taking that on. But I also love that, and I'm used to working in that. So I feel like uh, it moved relatively fast through it. Um, I think I'm comfortable use, uh, using my body in that way, and finding those odd, distorted positions were easier for me than maybe they were for you. I don't know when you were learning it originally. Yeah, I'm, for me, before I came into the studio, I had to... You know, I didn't know also when we were going to do this and how much time I was going to have to prepare. And I found out two weeks before that you were going to come in into the studio. So I just, I hadn't even thought about the solo, I think, for maybe 
five, six years. So I wasn't sure of how much my body was gonna remember it. But once I played the music, I had this first like full run through in the studio at Miami City Ballet. I have a recording of it. So I just looked at that and I started doing it. And I was like, oh, my body remembers this. But once again, even at Miami City Ballet, we had never worked with a pianist for the solo. We always had the recording. Peter played a recording for us. So coming into the studio and have a pianist was very challenging for me too because I was, I know the instruments, I know what I have to do when uh, something's playing, but I, it, I had to, you know, really go back into trying to find that and see like, oh, he, when he's playing this note, is actually supposed to be this instrument. So that was that was challenging with the musicality, but. I knew that, you know, Michael's going to do great things with it. And it was actually a really helpful tool for me to see someone that had the, that has the Taylor technique. And then now I think when I do it again, I have something else to bring to it because I saw someone that, mm. you know, danced with Paul Taylor and knew how what he, what he was going to move like. And then looking at the recordings, because we had a, an 86 recording of Peter Frank doing it and, uh, and from 89. And there were differences in those two recordings. And we had... You know, Again, so many questions, you know, the mystery of what, what changed, who changed that? Why did it go back? And then Michael's like, oh, that looks very Paul Taylor. Maybe we should do it more like that. So there were some things that were, we put it back there that Peter had done in 89, but hadn't done in 86. So it was a very interesting process in that sense of just trying to figure out and what, what would a modern dancer do, do with a solo. And it's interesting to think about moments of it look very Taylor and how much of that is Paul having to stitch some sections together that he couldn't remember. And also what of that is also just the brilliance of Balanchine, like intuiting and seeing and understanding the movement quality of Paul Taylor so that it fit Paul like a glove, just like Balanchine's choreography for all these other wonderful dancers that he just intuited how they moved and made something so appropriate for them. Which Paul did himself when he was making work. So it and I don't know if he had it inherently in him as a choreographer. That's the way he always worked. Or if it was influences like working with Balanchine that sort of planted that seed of it's it's more of a conversation with the dancer in the room. It's not a here, this is what you're going to do mm-hmm. because that wouldn't really work that well. I mean, maybe it does some for some people, but it feels like for Paul, it was always a dialogue between you and he or whoever he was working with in the studio. And this solo feels very much like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it had to have been a conversation both when he made it with Balanchine and when he worked with Peter on it. There had to be a dialogue between what Paul remembered and the body he was working with in the room. And I remember something from the reading about it that Mr. B couldn't really show all the different things that he wanted Paul to do. So he would kind of describe it, and then Paul would visualize it. And so there, there was this back and forth mm-hmm. in, the, in the creation. Exactly. Making a solo with Paul would be the same thing. He would sort of describe something to you, and you would do it. And honestly, I think describing it actually left some freedom for interpretation, like maybe he would get something better than what he was even imagining. So I would hope that it was a similar thing, that maybe Balanchine had an idea in his head, and then when he started working on Paul's body and saw the possibilities that could happen, that might have opened up. Because the solo does seem very Paul. The Mm. shapes feel very Paul. Even when you see images, photographs from the original version, it it looks like he could be doing one of his own solos, Paul. What are some hallmarks of Taylor's movement? I mean, that's a, that's a tough one to pin down because he uses such a wide-ranging vocabulary of shape and intention and texture and dynamic, all of these things. Um, I mean, within his own work, I think what I always notice about him is there's this wide breadth. 
with not with a D, breath, mm -hmm. in all the movement. Yeah, mm -hmm. it really carries across the body in such a huge, expansive way. Um, so I think that uh, internally there's a lot of space. And then there's a lot of contrast. So you'll have these wide, wide uh, spaces through the body that all of a sudden become very compact and small and distorted. He plays with like this idea of expansion and tension. Um, that's just speaking within the body. And then I think uh, the Taylor style is in the way it relates to the space around you is very unique. That sense of moving through something that's denser than empty air, um, which I'm sure connects in some way to Paul's swimming background, that sense of moving through water, that sense of resistance that the body feels in space creates a different texture in the way that you move and the shapes take on a different um, life. I think when, when moved through space, so you could have a simple V of an arm, but the way that V moves through space changes the way it looks somehow. Could you describe the basic structure of the solo to us? The solo has basically three sections, and the first two, they re it's a repeat, like full-on the same steps. So different intentions, I guess, it gets more intense. Um, and that's one of the hard things to learn because even though the first two sections repeat, there's no really structure, it's hard to uh, follow the sequence because the steps, the way they connect with one another is not very um, clear. You don't feel like there's a lot of connection between the steps. So that's difficult about the solo, but the, it, the nice thing when you get to repeat is that you start to get more of that feeling of desperation. And that's the thing you do, you know, when you're trapped, you just keep um, on trying to do not the same thing, I guess, to get out of it and I guess it puts you on a level that you start going crazy you know that's what people say also about like insanity of just trying to do the same thing over and over and expect a different result like you're doing the same thing that you did before you're not going to get a different result so I think that's the, the cool thing about the build up you know you repeat the same section twice Giovanni's comments here make me think of this quote from Paul Taylor about the solo's choreographic design the solo has a lot of steps, and most of them were not joined in a way that I understood, so I did a lot of work at home to try and figure out a way to get from one thing to another, knowing at the same time that there wasn't supposed to be any real flow. The momentum kept stopping, which gave the thing a very inhuman, neurotic look. And then you go to the third section where it really gets more intense, the music gets more intense. There's more floor work on the third section. You start rolling around, and you're so exhausted, and your, bar, your body just starts to give up, and your legs give up. You drag yourself. You get sluggish. It almost gets hazy. Your, your body gets hazy. Your mind, mind gets hazy, and the steps just go with it completely, with the music, with how your body feels at that point. So it's, that's, it's amazing that the solo just has this non-structural structure that works with the music is incredible. Yeah, I ran I ran the solo this past Friday because I try to do it on my own thinking like I have to rehearse it. <laughs> and I had a trusted pair of eyes watching it, which is helpful. And as that first pass through A feels so good and then you got start that second pass and you're thinking, I don't want to do this again. <laughs> I don't want to do all of that again. It's awful. But in a way that kind of helps inform it, that sense of desperation that yes. you get because you just want that second repeat to be over as soon as possible. <laughs> you don't want to be in it because you know that last section you can kind of give in and mm -hmm. just... It doesn't matter anymore. You've reached the end. You can let the exhaustion really play out. 
And in the first section, it's more a little, the poses are a little more held. So you still have to, you know, hold your body and, you know, be on your leg a little more. And then at the third section, you really kind of get to let go. And the moments that you kind of fall on the floor, you, you do some jumps where your legs are completely on the floor. Your elbow is under your leg and you do some spider jumps and that you are exhausted and you have to use all of you have to use your body weight to make it happen. If you try to, you know, just use technique and think too much of like, oh, I have to use this muscle, that muscle. No, you just do what your body wants to do at that point. And after, you know, repeating the two sections that you do, did not want to do it, it feels, it feels good to do that. It feels right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think because the solo is so confining, it's almost extra exhausting. Mm -hmm. And my natural tendency is to just open up and move through space as much as I can, which is freeing. And you can almost, it's almost easier. But when you're restricted in such a way where everything has to be sort of tight and contained between two walls, maybe, or even four walls, depending on how you're imagining, or a glass, or a glass. however you want to imagine, mm -hmm. it does, it's really exhausting. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the I think the facts that you don't have, you know, it's just you out there with a the spotlight on you and you're all in white and you, I mean, for me, like having no layers between my feet and the Marley, you just really connected. You feel very vulnerable, but at the same time, you don't feel like anybody's watching you. You feel like you're going through all of that alone. And it's really interesting. It's very intimate, very intimate solo. Betty DeYoung is the rehearsal director at Paul Taylor, and she's talked about how Paul is the master of gesture and the space around the gesture. And when Peter Frame was preparing to put this solo on stage, he asked the Balanchine dancer, Francisco Moncion, to come in and coach him. And this is how Peter reflected on that. He said, Frank was just great. He showed me focus, intensity, the stillness involved, that after you make a move, you stop. It's the image Frank helped me with. Could you talk about that idea of gesture, the space around the gesture, mm -hmm. that, that quality of Paul's work that relates so much to this solo? Paul was incredibly particular when it came to gestures, whether they be a human gesture or a, a dance shape, um, about making sure you give the audience their eye a chance to register the shape, especially if you're trying to say something or speak something or if that's a really important moment that he was trying to draw attention to. And we would joke about it all the time because you would hear his voice at the front of the room say, pause. And for a while, you're like, what is he saying? And you realize he was saying the word pause. He wanted you to stop for a moment. So you'd create the shape and you'd think in your head, pause, and then move on to the next shape. And it makes sense, and it feels good as a dancer, too, to let those moments register. They start to tell you a story. They sort of inform you as you're working. And I feel like constantly when I'm working with or coaching or mentoring other dancers, I'm looking for those spaces, looking for that time that they give and let you register a shape and be still for a moment and, like, let someone's eye take a rest before you give them something else that you're not constantly bombarding them with movement which is absolutely valid if that's what you're after. But I feel like in Paul's work and so many other works that I see, especially when I see Balanchine, when I see Tudor, when I see these things, they really leave space around the shapes that, that it compels me to watch. It draws me in, if anything. I'm going to want to look. You're telling me, hey, look at this. So this solo has tons of that. There's so many moments that really just, it's so nice if you could just stop and be still. 
And as a dancer, that's hard. You want to just keep moving. You have, especially if you have all of this like anxious energy. You want to you're just practically shaking. I think there are moments where you know in the solo where you pull your hands close in and you're looking at them, and I'll realize my hands are just shaking, and I'm thinking, wait, this is the moment I want to be still. So s- stop shaking so much, <laughs> calm down. Yeah. So it does help you as a dancer to be calm as well. Like take those moments and be calm and breathe for a second, and then plow into the next thing. That's so beautiful. I will Pause. say about Betty is you know. I reached out to many people about the solo to have them just to hear their thoughts, people that may have been in the audience that saw the work or, you know, someone like Linda Hodes who was in the Graham section. So she saw it from backstage. She would watch Paul solo. And and while she couldn't remember any particulars, just hearing things like he was always so staccato and yet fluid. And you're like, wow, that's going to be real easy to pull off. But it makes sense when you think about Paul as a dancer. There's such clarity in the way he moves. But there is the sense of fluidity. So even thinking about, like, I try to imagine him doing the solo, and I think, yeah, that makes sense. He would probably move really fluid through a lot of the shapes, but you'd really see those pictures. Like when you're down low and you're swinging your arm up overhead to block that light, I can just picture him, like, snapping into those images with clarity. And Betty, after the rehearsal in the theater at the Coke during the, the, ta- uh, the Taylor Gala, she came up and she said to me, she said, I mean, I don't remember her exact words, but it basically was she was brought to tears and felt emotional because she felt like she was seeing Paul in some way, that it was capturing some essence of Paul and bringing that forward. So that made me feel like, okay, at least I'm kind of on the right path here. Mm. Mm. (laughs) New York City Ballet is putting this solo back into its performances of episodes this winter season, and you two gentlemen will be alternating dancing the solo role. What does it mean for you to both be dancing it with New York City Ballet in the context of Mr. B's section of episodes and at this unique moment where we're honoring Paul Taylor and Peter Frey. It's a huge, huge honor, obviously, and it's a little unreal that, unreal, but also at the same time, it feels so, it's so right, because when you watch the whole ballet, it's like the solo puts it all together, and I think it's just history repeating itself. You know, they had Paul Taylor and Peter Frame do it, and now we have Michael Trisnovac, and yours truly. <laughs> and it's <laughs> it's amazing. I don't I don't even it's it's hard to put into words, and I'm s- extremely excited for people to see it because it is a mystery for everyone, and people are so curious, even the other dancers. Like, no one know what it looks like, and I think when you watch the ballet, because now you know having reading all the interviews and seeing everyone's perspective you start kind of going deeper into what you saw when i saw the full ballet and also when i wasn't performing and i got to watch my friends doing it and um you see you know how the the section that comes right before i mean the whole ballet the way it builds it starts you know the music is very broken up and the movements are very broken up you see a lot of you know just angular um, abstract movements and then the music um, changes and the movement changes and the section that comes right before it ends with a man trapped you know between all these girls and then the solo starts and it's um it's not a man but it's something trapped and then the solo ends and you don't know and we don't know if did it end with him with that still trapped did it die and then the Bach section restarts and sort of like, I don't know, a little bit like seasons, you know, like when the winter comes and everything fades and dies, 
the animals hide and then you have to let everything, you know, have like this rebirth. And I think the having the solo back in puts the whole ballet together and gives it this full, the full seasons of the dance. For me, I think um, having known about the solo for so long, having read about the solo for so long, it's kind of humbling in a huge way, not even kind of, it is humbling to become part of the story of this dance, of this solo, of this work, of this collaboration between these two great, incredible artists that sort of came together so long ago, you know. It makes me wonder, it makes me question a lot, like, why the solo fell out of the dance, why it was removed. Um, you know, was it so deeply tied to Paul as a dancer that it just had to be removed? So it feels nice that in some way we're being thought of as keepers, that we can kind of bring the solo back to life as part of the work. I'm really excited to see it as part of the work because I never have. So I have no idea of the arc of the dance and how it changes with the solo in it. I hope it lives beyond us, too. I hope this is not just a one-time thing, that we're sticking the solo in, we're honoring Paul, we're honoring Peter, we're honoring the work, and then it's going to disappear again. Or maybe that's just the way of this dance. Mm -hmm. Maybe that's what is just destined to keep happening. And then someone in 25, 30 years can find the solo and do it again. It. <laughs> maybe they'll have found Paul's notes by then, too. <laughs> <laughs> and we're discovering a whole new way. Mm -hmm. Maybe next time you you will be on the one setting it, which is... Well, if I find those notes, it's yeah. going to be a frightening <laughs> thing for that person. Because <laughs> I'm going to want to try to figure it all out again. Did you draw your own stick figures? <laughs> I did not draw any stick figures this time. No, no. Well, it's a beautiful lineage from Balanchine to Paul Taylor to Peter Frame to Giovanni Ferlan to Michael Tresnevik. So I wish you both well as you are writing this next chapter in the life of this extraordinary piece. Thank you. Thanks. In a 1986 interview, Peter Frame commented on how the restored solo made him see the rest of episodes in a new light. He saw fragments of the movement from the preceding sections in the solo, and he found that its extremes set up a more remarkable contrast with the beauty of the final Bach section. Peter finished his reflection on the solo with these words. It also adds something to me because it's Balanchine's, and it feels right having it in its own place. To learn more about Paul Taylor, Anton Webern, and both the Balanchine and Graham sections of episodes, please consult the reading list that can be found in the notes for this podcast episode. To stay up to date on all City Ballet podcast episode releases, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast directory. All of us here at City Ballet hope to see you soon in the theater, so head over to nycballet.com to have a look at the season. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you'll join me again to hear the dance.